0: our text Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and I encourage you to have the Bible open in the pew Bible that black pew Bible in front of you it should be found on page 553 how many of you uh, did your homework this week let me let me just start over how many of you have found the book of Ecclesiastes to be puzzling and enigmatic I see some of you raising your hand. The rest of you definitely didn't do the homework because if you take that 30 minutes, you'll discover the nature of the book. It takes about 30 minutes to read it in one sitting. I use my Bible app uh, to just read it to me. And, uh, and I've worked my way back over a couple of times through Ecclesiastes as a whole. There is some more homework. Last week, if the homework was summed up in the one word, which is read the book of Ecclesiastes, this week, uh, the homework is going to be applied just in this time and space right now, maybe to come this week, and the word is resist, okay? Because there's going to be some times and turns in the course of our text and our sermon this morning that you're going to be tempted, and I'm going to say, please resist. That temptation will be to say, I know someone who needs to hear this. Uh, This is a good message for so-and-so. If only they could hear that. Resist that, okay? Please incline, humbly consider how this might be something for you. Your story, your life, your struggle this week. This book was written, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, by Kohelet. That's the, the Hebrew name for the one. It literally means the gatherer, the teacher who gathers and assembles people the Greek translation is Ecclesiastes and that's where we get the name of the book Uh, He is a preacher, a teacher, a a pundit. Many people point to how this very well could have been. We don't know because it's not said explicitly. But there's indicators and we see some more of those clues this week. in what we read that it is uh, Solomon written some 3,000 years ago. It's hard to believe even when you uh, were to take this book and to say maybe you would alter and change ever so slightly some of the analogies and make them modern. You would say this book could have been written last week. Uh, but it was written 3,000 years ago to demonstrate what it says and what we know, and that is this, there is nothing new under the sun. Now, part of the homework could be that you go back, if you didn't already, and listen to the introduction last week, because there's a lot there just by way of orienting us to what this book is and is not, and uh, some of the challenges. But I'm going to do a little bit of review, and hopefully each week a little bit less, but here is some of that review and reminder. This is a, a puzzling book. There's a brutal honesty that Kohelet lays out for us concerning uh, our lives in this, this world. It's, a, it's a, an invitation to consider wisdom. This is part of the literature, the genre of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Uh, it's poetic in language at times. It's, it's puzzling. Sometimes you even sense that he's being sarcastic in what he writes. Uh, there's proverbs and analogies and, and all types of questions, deep questions. It's, it's probing and pressing us to consider some of the deeper questions about the meaning of life. It, it actually doesn't just look at the skill to navigate life well, which is wisdom, right? There's practical elements of that. But it probes to look even around at some of the exceptions to that general wisdom. Some of the questions that we have, really, if we're honest, if we look at life and we say, well, that doesn't add up. It, injustices and, and, and hurts and disappointments and, and the ways that the general wisdom of Proverbs doesn't seem to play out and work out in life at times, especially in seasons of suffering. Some suggest that it was Solomon who wrote it in his old age. That after he had experienced much of life, that he was humbled, he was repentant. Some of that language does come out, but what we do have, because he he had a, a great deal of access to trying to find meaning and and trying to find joy and purpose and significance apart from a life lived with God, because there was a season in Solomon's life. We know full well that second, or excuse me, First Kings eleven describes when his heart was turned away from God, and that was. That was a tragedy. That was a a dark season. You might say the purpose of this book is to give us some perspective and a little bit of practical wisdom on how to navigate life anywhere under the sun. The purpose is indicated even clearer when he just gets to his conclusion. You don't see this in the entirety of of the, the whole, but at the very last you say, this is where it's coming into focus because the last two verses in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14, he says, this is the end of the matter. All that has been heard: fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So if we were to summarize, we'd say, Ecclesiastes is, uh, "Life is hard, uh, then you die and then you're forgotten." Well, that sounds real cheery, doesn't it? It just... It just gets you really all excited. A couple of key phrases, though, to make sense of it, to, to not have us tracking towards despair. Here's two phrases that are really important. They're reiterated time and time again. You see them coming up. If you were to take a pen and, and underscore, you'd see it 30 times in one, in, in one of these words. First phrase is this for understanding is under the sun. The writer, he says, under this life, under the sun is, is kind of. A a, a cryptic way of saying, or another way of saying, life lived in this fallen world apart from God. Right? This is the experience of everyone, whether they know who to call out to as their maker. This is how humans live. We live our lives under the sun. It's tainted. Everyone experiences this. It's basically the view and the worldview of life on the horizon that doesn't rise above man and his and his experiences. Doesn't look upward. That's life under the sun. Then there's this other word, and that is vanity of vanities. Or some translations say, life is meaningless, meaningless. The the Hebrew word there is hevel. It's hevel. And it doesn't mean pride uh, or vanity in in the the vain way that we sometimes think of it, pride. But it's actually a word literally translated vapor or, or smoke or breath. It's something that you can tangibly uh, see at times, but it's elusive. It's, it's gone. It's temporary. It's, it's fleeting. Life, he is saying, is, is transitory. It's fleeting. Sweetness of life, sourness of life, doesn't matter. Life and the things herein are very fleeting. You can chase it. It's like the way that I think of it is, like, to me, it's like a bubble, right? You know, it, the bubble is something that fascinates children. You look at it you can tell that it is something, and, and then you, you want to grab it, and then poof, it's even gone faster. There's something there. But it's puzzling. If you chase it, you won't capture it. It's a, he uses the of the phrase, chasing after the wind. And then in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, right before the text we're going to read this morning, we find this, that he describes himself busily working about trying to find something of life. And what does he discover except that it is fleeting again and again? Let me read verse 13 and 14. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Another way of saying under the sun. It is unhappy, an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving, after the wind, we're busy trying to find meaning and purpose. Some like to suggest that the way that the writer here uh, composed it, it was something akin to a journal, right? Like he is describing, he's, he's outlining the many ways and the many places that he went. And he, uh, he in earnest, sought to find uh, meaning and purpose. And this is where he is, Right. You know, there's, there's great confidence that he has tried. We, we have confidence when we read, particularly this chapter, he has tried everything. And he did not hold back. He had tremendous opportunities. And he, he, he sought after all of these various avenues and pathways only to find that they led to a dead end. Or worse, a deceptive cycle that you go into. And it goes round and round and round and round again. Chase it. And you won't find it. We need wisdom. The Proverbs say, the psalmist says, even the writer here in Ecclesiastes says, the fear of the Lord is something important. Why is that? Because that is the beginning of wisdom. Not anxiety, but reverence and awe and honor and surrender and humility before the one who knows us and who has made us. That is why we're going to pray here after I read our text. Let me invite you to stand. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11, verse 1 through 11, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. There's the word hevel. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools of which to water the, f- the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart for, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward in, my, in all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You may be seated. This is God's word. Father, we pray that right now you would be merciful, you'd be pleased to guide us, to grant us your spirit, to guide us to see... Ourselves, to, to see our sin, but also to see our Savior. It's in his name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Growing up in uh, the 90s, uh, I got to watch the very first ever reality TV show. Does anyone know what this is? Anybody who watched MTV knows that it's, here's an original title, The Real World, right? The Real World, it went on for like 30 seasons And it was like seven, eight, you know, young people in their 20s thrown into an apartment in some city around the world. And then they just turned the camera on and then they just never turned the camera off. Right. That was our first exposure. What can happen? Well, a lot of the stuff that we're going to read about in Ecclesiastes. Okay, let me just tell you, Uh, there were tons. Of course, since then, there's been tons of reality shows, reality shows. Right. That have been made. Some of them aren't too real world because there's still that perfect lighting and there's a, there's a makeup crew and there's this fabulous furniture. And you, you, you kind of get the sense that even in this reality that they're trying to capture uh, without actors and without, you know, a Hollywood studio setup, that there's still a veneer. That there's still something that isn't quite being revealed about reality. Kristen and I watched uh, a show this past week, a reality TV show. It was, uh, you may have seen this, it's called Somewhat, Somebody Feed Phil. And, uh, and it's, this, it's, it's the travels of this kind of quirky guy, Phil Rosenthal. He travels all around the world, different uh, cities, and he, he enjoys the local cuisine, and he gets to know people. And, and last month, he, uh, there was an episode where he headed up to Maine, and of course, what did he try? No, he tried butter with a little bit of lobster, and uh, it was, of course, good, right? And it was a, it was a cool experience uh, for him, it's an illustration of the fact that if you cross over cultures and if you cross over time, what do you find? You find a lot of wonderful things. People gather, people enjoy gathering, regardless of where they come from, regardless of their education, regardless of their socioeconomics. They enjoy gathering, cooking, building new relationships and conversations and the sensual, simple pleasures of life. And there's something beautiful about that, right? As it should be. And and lest lest you think that the trajectory of this sermon is what many people think of as a misconception of Christianity, which is you should not have pleasure. You should make your life miserable, and you should distance yourself from that which would destroy it. That's not the case. We're not called to avoid pleasure. A wonderful meal can... Brighten and bless our day. It can engage our senses. It can be something that we look forward to. Even with great anticipation. It can even give us some nourishment. For a time. For the future. But at another level. Even the greatest of those. Meals and conversations around a table. With sweet and dear friends. Or new friends. Is still. It is still. Fleeting. And temporary, right? It's a vapor, it's a smoke, it's here and then it's gone. It cannot and should not give us meaning, right? It cannot. All that can be captured in a, a cup or on a plate, even the most exquisite buffet that you can possibly fathom under the sun, right? I remember as I don't, we were probably at the beach in middle school on family vacation, uh, maybe early high school. And I remember we went, and for the first time I saw an all-you-can-eat crab legs buffet. That was amazing. And I had a lot of butter with a little bit of crab legs. And I got to the end of the meal, and lo and behold, out of the corner of my eye, what is there but a dessert table. And there was chocolate, all kinds of chocolate, chocolate on chocolate cake. And I ate that. And we went back to our hotel, And I sat on the couch, and I remember feeling so ridiculously sick that I was watching a cockroach crawl across the ceiling, and I wasn't even fearful of it. I couldn't think of anything except for how miserable I was and how rich the food was now sitting in my stomach. I've never overeaten since then. (sighs) Not true. Two things that are operating in this chapter in his observations in the journal here he is cravings and clues there are some unrestricted cravings and there are some undeniable clues that's my outline it's not listed there but here's my outline unrestricted cravings undeniable clues these cravings the writer perhaps Solomon whoever it is he has an abundance of resources and luxuries right he has so much at his disposal You know how it is, we often say it's really sad when people have their life cut short and some of their dreams are are shattered and tattered and, and cast aside and lost. But you read this chapter and you say, this is the tragedy of someone who has lived their life and all of their dreams have come true. Again, back to the journal. Elsewhere, he's taking us. On these journeys to find meaning and purpose in life. Wisdom, work, wealth. Even prior to this it's the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and intellectual pursuit. Then all of that intellectual curiosity traces it back and says. This too did not bring me true satisfaction. The close of chapter 1 he was busy it says. Trying to apply himself. And that there was vexation, he says. There was a frustration to the fact that he had learned all of this stuff. And he was sought after. But then what does it say? Well, that didn't work, so let's move on. Chapter 2, let's try pleasure. The self-indulgence. Verse 1, it's very clear. Come, I will test you with every pleasure, he says to his heart. Enjoy yourself. Then later in verse 10, what does he say? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. That sounds like a pretty good idea. Guys, what do you want to do on Father's Day? Mm. Whatever I want to do. That'll be life. That'll be fun. That'll be giving. Well, here's some wisdom from Ecclesiastes. This is probably something that the snarky version of Troy would have said. Ecclesiastes 10. Listen, mom, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Yeah, man, I want to memorize that verse. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, but wait, that's only life under the sun. How does that work out? Well, he didn't try hard enough. You know, you say, well, you know, money can't make you happy, but that's only because you don't have quite enough. It's just a little bit more. Well, he tried really hard, and what does he try? Except all of the very familiar, popular, common ways that people try to navigate life, right? We just read them. Let's retrace it just for a second. What does he do? He tries comedy, verse two. Laughter. Laughter is a wonderful thing. It's especially wonderful when you're enjoying it with others. And you, you, know, you, you know how that moment where you share something that's hilarious, and it is, it is a sweet gift from God. But there are people that busy themselves trying to make themselves laugh and make others laugh that sometimes it's an entire disguise for the heartache and the depression that's going on inside. We know this. Covering over insecurities. Unable to cope, it's a denial. Verse 3, what else does he try? Nobody in New England's tried this one. It's called wine and alcohol. You get the impression that he's trying because he says, I still have my wisdom about me, that he's trying to do it in an experimental way, right? That he's trying to do it, you know, in moderation. But those substances, drugs and alcohol, can be very powerful and rather deceitful. And judgment, we know, is, is clouded. Well, let's try something else. Let's try something that other people wouldn't, you know, other people would say is, is, is noble. Maybe it's the building of things and, and something that's productive and not destructive. It's gardening, right? That's what verse four and five says. He constructs house and vineyards, fruits. He has so much of it that he establishes pools to be the irrigation for all of these things. It's like you get the impression he's trying to create a, a, a garden, A place of of respite and paradise. This does sound a lot like Solomon because we know that he had lots of building going on. In fact, his palace, as it's described in 1 Kings chapter 7, took 13 years to build, and he had a lot of help with that. Well, let's move on. Verse 6 and 7, he adds on more and more possessions. Even slaves, loads of, of livestock, the things that you would, would, would count a metric, you know. There's Bitcoin now, but you know, that fluctuates, right? This is something real. These are, these are goats and, and all this livestock. Then verse 8, he likes wealth, silver and gold, treasures. Verse 8, he pursues entertainment and that in the form of musicians, and that's what it would have taken, right? There's no streaming Spotify. I mean, this is, this is rare to find. If you're going to have music, it's going to be live music. Impressive. Then there is women. Verse 8, these many concubines. Whatever erotic pleasure or experience he wanted... Solomon could tell you, though, later on, that many of those foreign wives and women are what led him away into idolatry and away from the worship of God. Notice the language here. The, the language is all about self-indulgence. And, and e- even the, the way that it's described, it's all, listen to the plural. He didn't build a house. He didn't build a vineyard. He built vineyards, and he had He he had houses, women. There are many also, lots of personal pronouns here. I gathered, I got, I bought, I made. Just look at these 11 verses again and again. I became great. I did this. The only thing that this teacher, Coalette, could have envied is us. Right? Think about it. Modern Western affluent culture. I mean, all it would have taken is for him to spend just one day in front of a smart TV and Internet access. He would have seen people, movies and stories of people partying. He would have been able to see HGTV. I love it. Renovation after addition after addition after addition. No, let's just tear it down. Let's love it or let's list it. Whatever. Think about this. Exquisite food. He would see people traveling on cruises. Endlessly pursuing. He could sit. He could have scrolled through TikTok and gotten every giggle out of his body imaginable. He could have seen volumes of of educational, insightful things, of science and history and the arts and medicine, all that we have access to. And then, and then you're like, well, but not the harem. No, actually, even worse, pornography. That, that industry that keeps the internet moving fast. We have more access to more entertainment, more substances, more food, and more experiences, pleasures. We think we're so busy, and we're actually not. And the way that you find that out is to take out entertainment just for a moment. Does it work? And You heard me clearly, okay? You heard me. Yes. For a time, under the sun... But when you, eat, when you reach the end of the matter, you know and you want there to be more. There may be this searching and struggling. And I know this is kind of the, at, the, at the point at which we're going. To, I'm going to say, I remind you again, your homework is to resist. Resist that temptation to think there's someone else there out there who has this problem. But the fact of the matter is, is that we all have cravings. They might be a little more sophisticated, we think. They might be a little more tempered. But we know the struggle. It's a fight for joy. It's the fight of faith. I see it. I, I know because I see it. I look back on seasons of my life when I had opportunities for self-indulgence and I took them and I look back and I'm tempted in my unbelief and sin to smile on that. And That is not right. And then, and then we also do this, we do something else, we look out and we say, oh, well, this is not a struggle for me, then why are you coveting what other people have? Why do we look out and we say, yeah, but if I had that and this and, and, and that, that relationship and those possessions and, and those circumstances, I, I, I'd, be, I'd be happy. And you say, yeah, but they don't seem to be happy. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, but I, I know better. I mean, I, I, they don't know how to handle it, and I wouldn't know how to handle it. You sure about that? Trusted counselor and author Paul Tripp writes in his excellent book, which I referenced I think a month or so ago. I dared some of you to pick up a copy of it. It's called Sex and Power. The subtitle is Pleasures That Leave You Empty and Grace That Satisfies. Three copies, they're free. Feel free to grab one. Or go on Amazon. Amazon. Here's what he says, and he's echoing Coalette. He's, ec- he's echoing the teacher here because he talks about the problem of looking to something God has created, something good like sex and money. And then you discover in chasing after those things for, for something it cannot give, something it cannot provide by way of satisfaction. And you, you might get quickly discouraged and, and then wisely abandon those pursuits. But then there's other times when we go back again and again and again and we travel down the road of addiction. Yes, it may give us a temporary buzz or some type of euphoria and experience the you know a purchase, right? Nobody here's had buyer's regret. You feel like you are something. You feel like you're a little bit better. You feel like other people can respect you. You feel like you have some measure of well-being for that time. You feel like maybe things aren't quite so bad in life. This is what Tripp writes. He says, it all feels great. The problem is that the created thing that you're looking to has no capacity to satisfy your heart. It, was designed, it wasn't designed to do that. It cannot give you inner peace. It cannot give your heart the rest of contentment. It cannot quiet your cravings. In a word, it cannot be your Savior. And if you look outside of the Savior for something to be your Savior, the things will end up not being your Savior, but your Master. What well, seemed like freedom ends up being bondage. The things is not the problem What you've asked of it is the problem. Does that make sense? It's not the pleasures that are inherently evil or the problem. It's how we relate to it. What we've asked of these things that they are not able to bear, to carry. So you have all of these unfettered, unrestricted cravings that he has just poured himself into gaining and experiencing. And that leads us to this next thing, which is some undeniable clues. There are clues in this pursuit that we are made for something as human beings, something deeper, something greater, something better. One social critic, an author, Andrew Delbanco, writes in a book called The Real American Dream. He's a social critic. I don't know. I don't think he's a Christian. He just writes this observation. I think it's very insightful. The most striking feature of contemporary culture is the unslacked Craving for transcendence. This world is not enough. If we're honest, if we are humble, we would say, I think I'm craving God. C.S. Lewis, I, I quoted this last week in Mere Christianity. I'll give you a short version. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. Duck wants to swim. There's water. Baby wants food. She's hungry. She's, she's craving something that God has given, food. If I find, Lewis writes, a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I'm made for another world. To, to live with God. To love God, serve God, know God, enjoy God forever. The Bible does not say your life is best if you become a Buddhist. Isn't that great? Oh, oh, oh deny yourself any pleasure to, to set off and to push aside those empty yourself of any desire. And that's where enlightenment is. But the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't commend to us a lifestyle like that. If anything, it says that our desires are too small. They're too shallow. They're too easily satisfied with the fleeting hevel of the human experience under the sun, right? Our unsatisfied souls and longings are perhaps a spiritual clue that we are made to enjoy the pleasures of Of God, We're made to be in communion with our maker, God himself. So what do we do? What do we do with pain and pleasure? What do we do with feasting and seasons of famine, joy and sorrow? Well, we seek to celebrate and then we seek to rest. But this before the face and the countenance and the smile of God, not running away from him. We're turning not from God, but to God. And that with thanksgiving. If you can't enjoy it with thanksgiving, if you can't pray before, during, and after whatever you're about to enjoy pleasures in life, then something ain't right. That was the southern part of me coming out. Y'all listening now. It's true. Phil Reichen, one of the commentators in Ecclesiastes, writes, well, pleasure is only safe for us when God is there. This never happens when we take pleasure for ourselves or make it our main passion. It only happens when we receive every pleasure as a gift from God. Here's an application Pleasures this day, pleasures this week, enjoy them and thank God for them, for what they are. Not, not, not loading on them something else, just for what they simply are. And yes, it's fleeting. And doesn't mean that it can't be enjoyed, but let it be before the face of God. And King David knew how to do this. It's the reason he says in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life, God. In your presence is the fullness of joy at your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. And and the writer here in chapter 2 gives us a little bit of a a little ray of hope that he's moved back and off of this self-centered understanding of life. Because then he references back to God at the end of chapter 2. Let me read just these two or three verses. Beginning verse 24. There is nothing better for a person to do than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw, and get this, it was from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to those who please Him, God, has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. So alas, here's our problem. We fail, right? You can lay this all out and then we fail. God's not the reference point for us sometimes. We're asking too much of the world. And what happens? We become anxious. We become restless in the pursuit of stuff and experiences. We, be- we find ourselves deeply in debt. We find ourselves trying to enjoy pleasures which we thought was serving us. And now we're serving them. And we're struggling downstream with guilt and shame. I know it full too well we're living life only under the sun and we're setting God aside we're in some way shape or form we're denying his authority We're, we're minimizing his law we're forgetting his promises we disregard his warnings and it's led to one of two things under the sun despair or denial, the despair of life. You say, what's the point? It's like people who reach the top, 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 top of everything you could estimate would make a person happy in life, and they commit suicide. Just chasing. You you hear hear hints of it. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me and all this vanity and a striving after the wind. <clears throat> or we live in denial. We just keep chasing another experience, another achievement, another distraction, another form of entertainment. But let me invite you to consider that there might be a third way. In fact, there is. Let me invite you, I know this is not new news, but hopefully good news to you, that there is a third way, and that is our Savior, Jesus. J- Jesus entered into our hevel, our the pursuit of all these things. He entered into life. He knew how to enjoy the simple pleasures of life for what they are before the face of God with thanksgiving in his heart. He knew all of the temptations that we have and will have in life he had tremendous power. He had access to all forms of pleasures. And yet, in John 4, it's recorded that Jesus said, My food is to do the will of my Father. And to accomplish His work. And then He invites us, He says, in Matthew 6, it's recorded in that gospel account, that He, he looks at, he looks at the, the crowd and He looks at us and He says this, to stop in our, all of our anxious pursuit of, of security and, and, and safety and pleasure and predictability and, and health and, and all of this for us and for our children. And Jesus says, stop. Matthew 6, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spend. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory wasn't dressed like these. And he was dressed pretty well. But if God so closes the grass of the field, which is alive today and gone tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Now I wanna wanna just pause for a second and address our young people. I love you and I don't envy you. Uh, You have lots of access. You have more access our society has spent a ton of energy. Our culture has poured a ton of effort into marketing that communicates to you that all, all that you need is this answer. And it's one of these pathways. This is the solution. This is the pathway to life. And they're all dead ends, as Ecclesiastes will describe. Education, wealth, pleasure, experiences. That's the highway of life. Watch out. And really to all of us, I would say, maybe there's something you need to let go of. And and maybe, and by the way, today is a great day. It's always the right time to do the right thing. It's never too late to do the right thing. Jesus is at this crossroads. He's ready to save and to spare us. To satisfy, he offers the sweet blessings and the benefits of knowing purpose and meaning and a fulfillment that's not fleeting. We need a savior who has wisdom. We need a savior who has the love and the mercy to powerfully pull us off of the the treadmill, the rat race. Even seeing, though, my friends, even seeing and perceiving that that's empty. That is. Of vapor, even seeing that pleasure is not enough, we still cannot fix the problem right? We are not our savior; we need a comprehensive all sufficient good and precious savior and when we surrender and we fully submit, then he meets us in that now if you if you believe that all of life is like a works-based righteousness religion, right? Like it's an equation. Like, oh, you're a good person. You're moral and you're and, and you're dutiful and you're spiritual. And then you have the good outcome. Whatever that is defined as. You have health, wealth, and prosperity. If you believe that you obey and then life automatically offers you a reward for that here and now, let me tell you, Don 't read Ecclesiastes, you will be disappointed, you will be frustrated and it is a mis misunderstand- a common misunderstanding that that is how Christianity works, and that is not Christianity that is not the gospel. The good news is that our freedom is in forgetting ourselves and coming. To trust and find rest and joy and contentment in Christ. Even if we're in the darkest of places, in the lowness of a valley or the peaks. So we're going to pray and ask God's help, and then we're going to feed on Christ. Remember to nourish our souls at the table. Join me. Lord God,